your part would be in that. If you would at this time though, turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to be looking at chapter 6, 8, and 9. And more than once this morning, I will probably say 6, 7, 8, and 9 at some point. Um, but we are looking at 6, 8, and 9. If um, you are curious of why we are skipping chapter 7 this morning, it's in part because it is one of the interludes, it's one of the pauses in Revelation of the, the rest of the uh, action, so to speak. Um, you have 6, 7, and 9 are all describing kind of a continuous um, series of things. And then 7 kind of interrupts that. It kind of is a pause. And we're going to be taking time on Wednesday night to look at that chapter 7 and kind of go into it some more detail about who the 144,000 are, what that passage is describing, um, and kind of some of the different takes on that chapter. So we hope that you will join us on Wednesday night for that. If you are helping with charge, um, or for some reason were unable to join us last Wednesday, one of the things that we are doing is we are recording Wednesday nights uh, while we're doing those Revelation studies. Um, you will find a CD and a handout in the back on the back table. Um, and we would uh, just ask that you uh, take one of each of those if you would like to and that you can participate with us as well. Um, for Again, that's predominantly for those that are uh, helping with charge. Um, if we need more of them, please let, uh, please let the office know and we will get those taken care of and get those to you. Um, but for most of you, we hope that you'll join us on Wednesday night to explore those things. Again, we look at 6, 7, or 6, 8, and told you it would happen, 6, 8, and 9 this morning um, as we look, continue our look at the return of the King, at the coming of Jesus Christ. 6, 8, and 9 present some of the most interesting, disturbing, maybe even at times scary passages in Scripture as we see the wrath of God poured out on creation. And so if you are able, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to be skipping around. We're going to be in chapter 6, then we're going to flip over to chapter 8, and then to chapter 9 and read parts of passages out of those as we go through our reading this morning. Starting in chapter 6, Verse 15, reading to the end of that chapter. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then turn with me over to chapter 8, reading the first five verses out of that chapter. It says, When the Lord, the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, 
and an earthquake. And then lastly, turn with me to chapter 9, looking at the end of that chapter in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, as we read these passages, Lord, in many ways we are in awe. Awe of your wrath, of your power, awe of your justice, awe of these events that we read about. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning that our hearts would be drawn closer to you. Whether we be the broken, the confused, to find rest and peace in you. Whether we be the believer to find assurance and hope or whether we be one who does not yet have a relationship with you that sits here and their heart has been hardened against you for so long and this morning that you would take your word and that you would do a miraculous work of grace. That they would know that though the wrath of God is real and though it is sure that it does not have to be poured out on them. That you went to the cross to take the wrath of God upon Yourself. That You have rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all. Father, we pray, do a work through Your Word this morning. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Just to catch you up, if you were not here last week, Last week we looked at chapters 4 and 5 of this wonderful book, looking at the depiction that John gives us of the throne room of God, and he describes in, in so many words the, the beauty of the throne and what is happening around it, the worship of the 24 elders, the worship of the four creatures who are magnificent in their own right. We, we see the power of God, we see the sovereignty of God, we see, and then we see the one who sits on the throne who holds the scroll, the scroll that symbolizes the entirety of creation's history, all of humanity, past and present and future, and it, there is an angel that cries out, who can open the scroll? In other words, who can enact, who can carry out the will of God? And John begins to weep because no one's found that can do it. And John desires the will of God. John desires for his will to be carried out, for God's will to be carried out. And John desperately wants that. And so he begins to weep when there's no one that can do that. And an elder has to stop him and say, Hold on. Look, the Lion of Judah 
And he turns and he looks, and he does not behold the lion, but rather he beholds the lamb that was slain. The lamb, it is the lamb who is worthy. It is the lamb who has the power to open the scroll and enact the will of God, to accomplish the will of God. Of course, we know the Lamb to be God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And so we see in chapters 4 and 5 that that God has planned out all of history. He has planned out His will. He knows what He desires to accomplish. He has a great purpose for all things. And it is God and God alone who can accomplish all of those things. There is no other one that can mess it up. It's not dependent on anybody else. It's not dependent on myself or on you or on anyone else. God alone will take care of His plan. Praise the Lord that we get to be a part of it. We get to be instruments in His hand to see it accomplished. As we look at chapter 6 and 8 and 9 this morning then, what we begin to see is the unfolding of the end of that plan. As the seals on that scroll are broken, as the trumpets are sounded, we begin to see the unfolding of God's plan for the end of this creation. The passing away of the dissolving of these things, as Peter puts it in the passage that we read this morning. So this morning, uh, I want you to uh, look with me, and we're going to start with the justice of God. The justice of God. I was reading this week uh, one of the new books by John Piper, and he was talking about God's providence. One of the things that he mentions in there is that he wants to take great care not to put God's providence above his other attributes because that's a, a danger that we sometimes fall into, a trap that we sometimes fall into, that we put one of God's attributes above his other attributes. And really, we see this in the church quite a bit. It, it's become fairly common practice And it's easy to fall into that we place God's love above His other attributes. We talk about Him in in terms of His love and His grace and His mercy, and rightfully so. No one can know the depths of God's love. No one can know the breadth of His grace and His mercy towards us. We are right to sing about it. We're right to talk about it. We're right to to try to bask in it and and uh, give Him glory for it. But we do so at times at the expense of his other attributes, including his holiness and his justice. God's justice does not compete with his love. God's justice and his holiness do not contradict his love. Though it may be difficult for us to grasp, God's justice and God's love complement one another. In a perfect unity. It's hard for us to to fully grasp that sometimes. But it's true. God's justice complements God's love. And what we see in 6 and 8 and 9 is the pouring out of that justice. But we also see His grace among these things. And so this morning as we go through these passages, we want to look at both things. So let's start with the justice of God. One of the things that we see with the justice of God is that it is patient. It is patient. 
You look in chapter 8 in the passage that we read just a moment ago in verse 1 it says when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour you have this pause up until this moment you've had the worship of the 24 elders you've had the worship of the the four creatures and of the angels you've had the worship of of creatures uh, big and small all over you've had all of the seal the six seals being broken and the chaos and the the wrath of God being poured out but here at the beginning of the seventh seal when it is opened you have a moment of silence a pause to some extent this is for literary effect As all of heaven, all of creation waits with bated breath to see what the Lord will do. At the same time, I think it reminds us of God's patience in His wrath. You go back to chapter 6 and you see in the fifth seal... In chapter 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers, should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long, O Lord? And the Lord says, wait. Be patient. That cry there, by the way, is reminiscent of the saints that have been martyred of who have died for Christ that cry of how long it echoes the words of David in the Psalms how long O Lord how long must we wait how long will evil endure how long be patient be patient because he desires for all of his will to be enacted be patient because he desires for All people to have the chance to repent. Be patient. Be patient. It's like a parent with a child and the child is doing something wrong and the parent is patient. Not desiring to punish. Not desiring for there to be correction in that manner, but desiring that the child will figure it out. (laughs) That they will catch on and do the right thing. And so he waits. Praise the Lord, as we've said earlier in the service. Praise the Lord that he is patient with us. I don't know about you, but I'm a knucklehead. I got reminded of that multiple times over the last two days as I spent time with my mom and my sister in a kitchen. I'm a knucklehead. I don't always do the right thing. I don't always do it in the right order. I'm sometimes slow to catch on to God's plan. But he is patient. My testimony is a testimony of God's patience in a way that sometimes I'm not always best at reflecting towards others. He is patient with you, my friend. 
At the same time, we see here that not only is the justice of God patient, but that it is an answer to prayer. We just read out of chapter 6 where these saints cry out to God, How long? How long will this go on? How long will this continue? How long until we have justice? How long until we are avenged? We see it in chapter 8 as well as we continue to read that passage that we had read earlier. That then I saw the seven angels who stand before God with seven trumpets given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Jumping out down to five, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake of the day or sorry, an earthquake. We see there the prayers of the saints. God's justice is an answer to those prayers. Certainly, God's justice is for Himself. And ultimately, He is the one who has been wronged. Ultimately, is He that creation has rejected and said, we don't need you. We, don't, we are not thankful. We don't care that you have created us. We don't care that you have kept us alive all this time. We don't care that you have a plan for us and that you love us. We reject you as our King and we desire ourselves. So yes, his justice is for himself ultimately, but his justice is also an answer of prayer for the saints, for those that are broken and wounded. It is a reminder uh, in many ways of what we see in Exodus when you go back to the beginning of Exodus and Israel, the people of God find find themselves in slavery to the Egyptians and they too cry out, Lord, remember us. And the Lord hears their prayers. And He sends a man named Moses. And through Moses comes freedom. Through Moses comes justice. We could go on and on about really the connections. If you go back, it might be worth your time this week as you're going through the readings of Revelation to also go back and read the Exodus story and see the foreshadowing of God's Uh, work there in Exodus and his work in Revelation as well. But it's an answer to prayer. God's justice is also on the lost. It's on the lost. You see in verse uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 3, it says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We actually see multiple points during the tribulation where God unleashes a plague. He unleashes His justice and His wrath onto the world and but He He holds back. He holds back that wrath being poured out on the people of God. On those that have been sealed. God's wrath is not for those that have been saved. God's wrath is for those who are lost and who have continued to reject Him as King.
for those of us that have been redeemed, for those of us that are the people of God that have been adopted into his family, he already took the wrath. That's what the cross was for. Think about that as you go through these readings of 6 and 8 and 9 and what happens later in the bowls as you see the wrath of God poured out on creation. Think on those things and then be reminded that all of that was for us, but Christ took it on the cross. And then we understand, Lord, Lord, why have you, why have you abandoned me? We understand it is finished. We understand the darkness of the moment as God's wrath was poured out on Christ so that we did not have to experience this. The justice of God is on the lost. God's justice is poured out in His wrath. Justice brings with it not only the declaration of guilt for the individual, but it brings with it a sentence it brings with it uh, something that must occur to make up for something in a way. A punishment. A consequence. The justice of God not only declares humanity guilty, it not only declares creation unrighteous because of sin, because of its rebellion against God, but it brings with it a consequence, and that consequence is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. We may look at these things and think of their horror and, and of their depths and their devastation, but let us remember that the wrath of God is not unjust. It's not unjust. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of His wrath. It is by His grace that we not all experience it. But we see the justice of God meted out in these passages and we see the wrath of God poured out in these passages as a consequence of our guilt. Again, three things really quickly. First, the wrath of God is sure. The wrath of God is sure. What's one of the things that we see foreshadowed in all of Scripture. We, we love, and rightfully so, to start in Genesis and see the grace of God, see the mercy of God, see the redemption of God, and the plan and the threat of that from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. And we rejoice and we glorify that, and we should. Christ has come. God has redeemed a people to Himself. We have been adopted. We who were sons of rebellion are now sons of the King and daughters of the King. What a marvelous thing that is. And we know it to be true because we see Him fulfill things throughout all of history and in our own life. But let us not miss that the justice and the wrath of God are side by side with the grace and mercy of God from Genesis through Revelation as well. That the wrath and the justice of God were poured out on Adam and Eve as well as the redemption of God. That though Israel was His people and He poured out grace and mercy upon them, that He also fulfilled His justice and His wrath on them when they would not obey. That other nations have experienced the same. Let's not miss that. 
that those things happen and that they're there for a reason to warn all of us that His wrath in the future is a sure thing. Just as the cross and the resurrection were a sure thing, just as heaven is a sure thing for those who have believed in Him, so too is the wrath and the justice of God for those that do not believe in Him. At the same time, let us understand that the wrath of God is devastating. You read through 6 and 8 and 9. You see the seals broken. You see the trumpet sounded. Later in the book, we see the bowls poured out. This increasing intensity of the wrath of God. As we see locusts and plagues as we see the water turn red, as we see the, th- the creatures of the sea die off, as we see war and civil war, as we see the host of hell unleashed on earth, as we see a fourth of the people die here and a third of the people die here, this is devastating. We rightfully mourn the death of one. Rightfully mourn the death of one. We are rightfully grieved at the death of hundreds. We are rightfully mortified and devastated at the death of thousands. But here we talk of the death of millions. It is almost unthinkable. The wrath of God is sure, and it is devastating. Notice what it says in 6, with the passage that we read at the beginning. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hide themselves in the caves among the rocks, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of God. For who? For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? All hope is lost in the wrath of God. They cry out for the end of their lives. And here's the thing. They don't find it. The lost don't find it. They don't find it. They wish for death. And they cannot find rest in even that. It is devastating. And it is systematic. It's easy for us sometimes maybe to see 6 and 8 and 9 and see the chaos of it all, see the devastation of it all, and just be overwhelmed by it. It's easy for us to watch the news for that matter and see everything that's going on around us, whether it's natural disaster or it's political upheaval or it's civil wars or other wars in other parts of the world or whether it's... uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are being martyred for the faith or whether it be a lack of of food and provisions or whatever it means, we look at all of these things around us and it's easy to get caught up and say, man, the world is crazy and chaotic. But what Revelation 6, 8, and 9 want to remind you and me and the rest of the world is that God has planned it all. He is in control of it all. It is systematic. You see him say, in this seal, destroy this, make barley ten times the price that it should be. But don't touch the grapes, don't touch the olives. 
You see him unleash the host of hell onto the earth to torment everyone. But he says, don't touch those that are sealed by me. Don't touch those that are sealed by have the seal of God. He says, unleash a civil war where we fight, where humanity fights against itself, and it'll be this many people that die, not this many people. A third here, a fourth there. We talk in fractions. Though they are devastating numbers to comprehend, it is limited. The justice and the wrath of God should be merited on all people. He, he holds off. We see His grace in that. It, it's hard to, for us to fathom that sometimes when we read these passages, but it's systematic. It's measured. It's that way for a reason. It's because God desires ultimately not to punish, not to, not to met out these things, but rather He would rather for individuals to find repentance and yet, one of the most devastating passages in all of Revelation is what we read at the, chap- the end of chapter 9, in verse 20. It says, The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor, the gi- nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. They observe all that God does. They observe the wrath of God, the justice of God poured out, and yet they remain hard in their hearts. By, by the way, we read Exodus and see the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and then look here. You see the plagues. You see the calling out of God's people. You see the plagues that are poured out. You see the hardness of those that are not His. You're going to see those connections. Maybe the most devastating passage in all of Revelation is not God's wrath or God's justice. It is the depravity of humanity to be unable to see God. His depravity. We see here in chapter 9, the heart desires evil. The heart desires evil. They do not repent of their works of their hands, nor do they give up worshiping demons or idols of gold. And then they list off all all the other things that that idols can be made up of. Notice here the connection between idol worship and demon worship. They are hand in hand. You worship one and you are, for all intensive purposes, worshiping the other. And you may sit here this morning and, or hear this recording later and say, well, I don't, I don't worship an idol. There's nothing set up in my home. There's no ceramic figurine. There's no wooden totem pole. There's no... No figure of gold in my life that I I worship. We don't do that anymore. Maybe our ancestors did long, long time ago, but we're, we're not people that do idol worship. Friend, let me remind you, idol worship is not just the bowing down to a figurine. It is when you put anything on the throne of your heart that is not Jesus Christ. When you put anything on your heart that is not Jesus Christ, that is an idol. It may be your own desires, your own self. I'm going to make all the decisions. I'm going to worry about me. It may be your resources, your money. It may be your job and your prestige. It may be relationships. It may even be your family. And I say that carefully. 
We are called in the, in, the, in the scriptures to love our family, to provide for our family, to protect our family, to guide our family. But we do so in light of His Lordship. We do it through Christ. We don't do it instead of Christ. And when we put our families before Him, they become an idol. And trust me, it is easy to do. Those blue eyes look up at you, they bat, their, they bat a little bit, they get a little teary-eyed, that lip begins to quiver, and it's hard not to bow down to the little blue-eyed idol. Not to give her everything she wants, not to worry about what God wants, not to worry about anything else, but to say, she's more important. And in doing so, I do her a great harm. I do her a great harm. When I don't point her to Christ, but I point her to herself, I do her a great harm. So yes, your family can become an idol. Point them to Christ. Don't point them to themselves. The heart is evil. Don't tell them. Be very careful, that maybe don't tell them it's hard, but be very careful when they tell you, when you tell them, trust your heart. The heart is deceitful. Be very careful when you tell them to follow their heart. The heart is deceitful. Point them to Christ. The heart desires evil. The heart desires to have idols. The heart does evil. It does evil. It says they not only did they not repent of their worship of demons and idols, but they didn't repent, they didn't stop doing the other things. They didn't stop murdering, they didn't stop uh, thieving, they didn't stop sorceries. And again, we may look at this, let's say, well, I don't do this. Well, it's supposed to be a representative list of sin. The heart not only desires evil, but the heart will do evil. Lastly, the heart is not easily changed. Think about, go back and read 6, 8, and 9 in particular and think about all of the horrors that these individuals witness and their heart's not changed. Their heart's not changed. They won't repent. Brothers and sisters, the heart is not easily changed. It is only by the grace of God that someone knows Him. And so let us, not, let us not be dismayed when we serve and we don't see an outcome. It is up to the Lord to do the work in that sense. It's up to the Lord to change a heart. If the wrath of God won't change and cause people to repent, then surely we, have to be, we cannot be so arrogant as to think that our words or us being witty or us having the right program or whatever it may be, let us not be so haughty to think that that's going to do it. Or a new building or whatever it may be. Let us be very careful with that. At the same time, as we pray, God change hearts God, have grace in hearts. Let us understand, let's not throw up our hands and go, you have to do it all, I can't do anything. Let's understand that God's most common means of grace is to pour His grace through you and me. 
So we do have the programs. We do have the buildings. We do have the words. We do have the preparation. Because more often than not, God pours grace into the lives of others through you and me. That's how he typically works. So let us not be arrogant in saying, oh, look at what I can do and all of this. But also let us not throw our hands up and say, I should do nothing. God has got it all. No, God desires to use you. And if you are not allowing him to use you, then there's a problem. He says, go and make disciples. That's a command for all of us, not for a few. If you are not doing that, then there's a problem. The heart is not easily changed. So we pray for the grace of God. God, change hearts. And certainly that's where we want to end this morning. The grace of God. As we look through these passages, we've talked about the justice of God, the wrath of God, the depravity of the human heart. But let us not ignore the grace of God here. Remember that the justice of God is in part a response to the prayers of His people. So maybe you are here this morning, my friend, and you are broken, overwhelmed, in grief. He hears you. He hears you. It may seem like He is slow to act, but He hears you. And He will act on your behalf. You may have to be patient. You may have to wait. But as God tells Paul, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Trust Him. Continue to pray out and call to Him. He hears you. Believer, He watches over you. There may be temptation for you this morning to sit back and to do nothing. To say it's not worth it to risk everything for Him. It's not worth it to risk my reputation. It's not worth it to have other people talk about me like I'm some kind of crazy person. It's not worth my job. It's not worth my time. Believer, He watches over you. I love what Peter says in the passage that we, that we read this morning. He says, think about these things. If all of this is going to burn, all of this is going to pass away, then how ought to we live our life? If all of this is temporary and the only thing that is left is whether or not we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then how do we live? What does it matter? What matters? Maybe the better question. What matters? And are we doing those things? He watches over you. He guides you. Let him do that. Lastly, maybe there is one here this morning for the sinner that you have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Up until this point, your heart has been hard towards him. It's been hard towards him. Sometimes in, in our life, that looks like rebellion. It says, no, there is no God. I don't believe in that stuff. I just come because my family wants me to come, but I, I really don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes it's someone that, man, you proclaim, yeah, he's king, and you say all the right things, and you do all the right things, but your life doesn't show that. Your life doesn't show the marks of repentance. Your life shows that you're still the one on the throne. 
that you're still following something else. Sunday you may look great, but Monday through Saturday you live like everybody else in the world. Here's the great thing. The wrath of God should be yours, just as it should have been mine. But he gives an invitation this morning. Let me take the wrath. Let me take the wrath, Jesus says. Trust me. Follow me. Obey me. And know grace. Know my love. Know what it means to be part of the family of God. So that you don't have to worry about the wrath of God. He invites you this morning. And again, all we do is we trust him. We follow I'm going to have the praise team to come back up this morning. We're going to have a time of response. We've heard about the justice of God, about the wrath of God. We've heard about the hardness of our own hearts. We've heard the invitation of God this morning. Maybe you need to come and to repent. Maybe you need to, to come to the Lord and say, I have had a hard heart this morning. Then I, I ask, I beg that you would do that. Follow Him. Accept his invitation this morning. Maybe you're a believer here and you just need to praise him because you realize the wrath of God should have been mine, but it's not. It's already been taken care of. I read this and go, wow, chapter 7 is going to be pretty awesome. <laughs> Maybe this morning you need to worship. And I would beg you to do that as well. Don't hold back on that either. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you desire a relationship with us. Lord, that you have sought us out, that you have put your grace in each one of our lives, that you removed a heart of stone and you replaced it with a heart of flesh that could feel your love and your grace and your mercy, that it could experience your glory and your righteousness rather than your wrath. Father, I pray that you would do the work of salvation amongst us this morning. I pray that you would do the work of worship amongst us this morning as we respond to your word and to the truth that you give us. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.